Hey ladies, welcome to the Woman Podcast. My name's Katie Beza and I'm your host. And this episode is a continuation of a teaching series that we have started this year in 2021. So our good friends Rebecca Shatswell and Heather Hoyt will be leading us through the Gospel of Luke. And this teaching is recorded live at New Life Church in Conway. If you're local and you'd like to join in person, we would love to have you. We meet Thursdays at noon. And we hope this resource helps you as you read along in the book of Luke. And we hope that it encourages you that you can read the Word of God and you can get something out of it. So tune in and we hope you enjoy. Hello, ladies. Next to last week. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bummed about that. I have really enjoyed uh, getting to open up the Word every week knowing that we're all going to gather, you know, and hear from the Holy Spirit. And so thank you, ladies, for coming. Just like Abby said, thank you so much for being a part of this. Um, I'm going to start out. We are going to be in chapters 21 and 22 today. Um, and I, I want us to, to open it up actually looking at the last two verses of chapter 20. This is where um, Ellen closed out last week. Um, how many of you were here to hear Ellen teach last week? Okay. Well, the podcast is forthcoming, I will tell you. Uh, we had a couple of sound issues, so we are going to re-record that podcast so that you ladies have it, because I am telling you right now, if you were there, you already know no one needs to miss that teaching. It was incredible. So it is forthcoming. Um, the last two verses in chapter 20, uh, and let, me just, let me just pray really quick. Holy Spirit, would you just open and unlock the eyes of our understanding as we read your scriptures. I just pray that you would reveal Jesus to us uh, to the end that we would love him more fully, that we would look more like him, and that we would build your kingdom on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, last two verses of chapter 20. Uh, As Ellen taught us last week, this is very interesting because, you know, prior to this, we've had paragraph, small paragraph, one location. Next paragraph, we're in a different location, different topic, different group of people. Next paragraph, you know, it's kind of how all those parables worked, right? But last week, as we saw in chapters 19 and 20, we're in like one fluid conversation in one space, right? So we're in the temple. Jesus has been hanging out in the temple. He's already walked in and done his deal where he flipped the tables. And we know uh, if any of you identify with Peter, which I'm going to talk about in just about last week, um, And so they are still in the temple at this point. So we're continuing on. We're ending chapter 20. And he says this. He is speaking at this point, which you'll see in in verse 45. Uh, It says, then with the crowds listening, he turned to the disciples and said. Okay, so he's just had exchanges with the Pharisees. We've had all of these moments. And now with everyone listening, he's got his 12 there. But with everyone listening, he looks at his 12 and he says, be aware of the religious teachers of the law. He is openly calling them out in front of everyone at this point, talking to his disciples. He's saying, beware of them. And then uh, later in verse 46, he says, how they love the seats of honor in the synagogue and the head table at the banquets. Do you guys remember when Jesus went in the home of a Pharisee? 
right? He had already had, remember the discussions on the Sabbath? We walked through all of the discussions on the Sabbath in that final discussion. He's in the home of a Pharisee after being in the field, then two times in the piece of advice. And remember, we talked about if Jesus was gonna give a piece of advice, we would like lean in and listen to him, right? And his piece of advice had to do with this statement. He said, when you're talking about a banquet, don't fight over that position of honor. Don't rush to get the seat of honor. Take the path of humility. So he has already addressed this in the home of a Pharisee. He's had conversation after conversation. I love how Ellen pointed this out last week, how gracious he is to continue having these conversations conversations over and over and over again. And it really shows the mercy of Jesus, right? He's dealing with these religious leaders. And at this point, he stops dealing with them. And he starts looking at his disciples and said, beware of this. Now I'm calling this out. Do you see what they're doing? They are fighting over the seats of honor. I'm telling you, don't be like this. Beware of this, right? And the next thing that he says, he says, yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be severely punished. These are harsh words happening in the temple at this point, y'all. But what's interesting is we have just one chapter over, Luke 19, verse 46. Sorry, two chapters. I'm, you know, not the greatest with numbers. Um, verse 46, um, we have this encounter where Jesus goes in and he starts flipping the tables, right? And Ellen talked about this last week that what was happening is they, were, they had those who inspected the offering that you were bringing in. And if they found your offering to be lacking, they would force you to purchase one of their offerings and they would upcharge it by 40%, taking that 40% and pocketing it for themselves. And it would also go into the pockets of Caiaphas and Annas, the high priests, right? And you have to know the homes of Caiaphas and Annas, these are palatial homes that we're talking about here. They're huge. These are not just your run-of-the-mill homes. And you look at it and you're like, isn't it really interesting that this servant of the Lord, this pastor in the house is like, in, in their day and time, this is like a multi-million dollar home that he has. This is huge, right? And he's getting wealthy by taking money from widows, by taking property from widows, by robbing them as they are coming in to offer sacrifices to the Lord, right? And so here again, Jesus still in the temple is addressing how they are caring for widows. And I just wanna remind you, uh, let, me, let me just look back. Exodus chapter 22, verses 22 through 24 says, you must not exploit any widow or orphan. If you exploit them in any way and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry and my anger will blaze against you. I will kill you with the sword, then your wives will be widows and your children will be fatherless. This is how serious the Lord is about widows and orphans. And I just wanna explain for just quickly and then we're gonna move on. Part of the reason that he is so serious about it is because the father figure in the home is a covering for the home. And when you are talking about women and children who have had this covering removed, they are exposed, right? And so God himself is to be their covering and the church was instituted partially to be the covering for that. We were the portion that was to become the covering for these people, not to exploit them. So he is meaning business. These people that I have given you to cover, that I have given you to protect and to care for and provide for, if you exploit them, I will exploit you. 
I will turn this back on your head. He is not playing games about this. And so then we move right on into chapter 21. And here we have him talking about a widow again. While Jesus was in the temple, starting at verse one, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, this poor widow has given more than all of the rest of them for they have given a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything that she has. So here she, yeah, baby girl. I love baby Junie. I mean, she's worshiping with us. So here he is having the juxtaposition of the rich people in the temple and the widow who is giving literally everything she has, which by the way, the two small coins were, in some translations, it'll tell you that they were mites. The mites were somewhere around one fourth to one fifth of a penny per, right? And she dropped two of them in. So I don't know what the math is, but that's like one fifth or one fourth times two is what she has has dropped in to the offering box here, right? But the rich people come in with their bag of money and the place that they are actually depositing this, these are called agape boxes. These are fastened to the walls of the temple. These agape boxes were actually fashioned in the shape of a trumpet. They were large trumpets. And so you would go and you'd chunk your money down, down the bell of the trumpet, right? And you better believe if people are, are tossing coins in here, it's like jingle, jangle, jingle, jangle, jingle, jangle, right? And so you have your rich people who are chunking their large amounts of money, making tons of sound. That sound is reverberating off of that wind instrument. Wind instrument? Anyways, yes. Brass, okay, anyways. So says the musician, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> anyways, so um, the wealthy people are making tons of noise with the agape box trumpet offering places and the widow's might is like tinkle, tink, tink, tink going in there, right? And the interesting thing to me here is that the Bible uses the word gifts right here, that the rich people were dropping their gifts. And this is the word, you gotta get your ready, doron. Doron is the Greek word that is used here. And it is money that is cast into the treasury for the purpose of the temple and the poor. Isn't that interesting? This is money that they are giving on behalf, not only of the temple, but of the poor, of whom the widow is a part, and they are casting it in there, making sure that everyone can hear exactly how much sound is coming so that everyone can see how big their offering is. But you know that they're comparing their offering not against the Lord, but they're comparing it against hers. So they're thinking, my offering is huge. It's sizable. Everyone sees how big this is. But the Lord is saying, I'm looking not at your offering, but I'm looking at your heart. And I'm the one who happens to see that the portion you have brought is minute compared to the surplus that is in your home. But this woman brought the very last of what she had. She didn't have any more to give. She brought the very last, what we might consider two pennies to the Lord in her act of faithfulness, even though she had previously been getting robbed by the leaders of the church. She's getting robbed abusively out of her offerings. She still comes to bring what little she has to the Lord in faithfulness. It's such a beautiful picture to me. And the Lord is honoring of the widow. I was talking to my sister Amber last night. Slow down and quote what she said last night because I thought it was so amazing. So I wanna read it to you. 
She's referring to the widow. She says, this widow has been robbed and hurt by the church. She's been exploited by the pastors and did not become bitter. Instead, she took what she had left that had not been destroyed by the church and gave it back to the father. It seems like her perspective is that the father is worthy no matter my circumstances and I will obey no matter the cost. Can I read that again? This widow has been robbed and hurt by the church and exploited by the pastors or the leaders and did not become bitter. Instead, she took what she had left that had not been destroyed by the church and gave it back to the father. It seemed like her perspective is that the father is worthy no matter my circumstances and I will obey him no matter the cost. Isn't this amazing? And I just began to think how many of us have been in a circumstance where we have ever felt taken advantage of? And what was our gut reaction? How did we respond? Have we ever been hurt by a leader? Have we ever been hurt by a church leader, by our employer or a fellow employee, by a family member, anyone that we would have ever viewed as a leader? And what has our response been? And I just felt like the Lord wanted to take a second right here before we go on. And I I just wanna pray for us for a second because if you're like me, you have walked through a circumstance where you have felt either taken advantage of or treated harshly by someone who's a leader. It could be a husband. This could be a teacher. It could be your employer. It could be a family member. And I, I just wanted to pray for a second Let the Lord have a moment to speak to us and then we're gonna move on to the next section. So if you would bow your heads. Heavenly Father, I may not know the experience of every woman in this room, but you do. And every woman who would be listening to this podcast, but you do. But God, I know what circumstances I've been through. And Father, I know what it is like to feel discredited or undervalued or discarded by someone that I trusted as a leader. And Father, I just sense your heart right now to step in and to heal in this moment. And so Father, I just ask that as a leader in your house that you would allow me to stand in the place of leaders who have hurt and ask for forgiveness. Ladies, I just want you to just remain prayerful in your your heart right now. And I just wanna say, if you have been hurt by a leader, then I wanna stand in, in the position of that leader and I want to apologize to you. Please forgive me for not hearing you. Forgive me for not seeing you. Forgive me for not valuing you or quickly dismissing you. Please forgive me when my words were harsh or abusive. Please forgive me when I didn't give you a second chance. Please forgive me when I didn't believe in you or in your ideas. Please forgive me when I was negligent with you. Please forgive me when I used you and I did not honor you. Please forgive me when I broke covenant with you. And please forgive me 
when I exposed or embarrassed you. Please forgive me. Father, I pray that your spirit of forgiveness would fall in this room. I pray that you would help us, Lord God, where we don't feel like we have it in us to forgive. You are in us and it is in you. And so Father, right now, we just picture the one that we need to forgive and we ask you, Lord God, help us forgive them. And right now, ladies, I just wanna encourage you just, just inside of yourself, even you can even say their name. God, I choose to forgive whomever it is that you're picturing. As hard as it may be, and I may have to choose to forgive them tomorrow again too, and that's fine. But I ask you, Holy Spirit, to help me bless, just speak a blessing over them. I bless their home. I bless their marriage. I bless their children. I bless their finances. I bless the words from their mouth and I bless their leadership. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Ooh, just think. Moving right along. The next section is an interesting section because we're, this is a section that ends up taking us into biblical prophecy. Um, and Jesus is predicting future events. He's actually prophesying, but he does it in an interesting way. So he's gonna talk about one segment of time and then without indication, he's gonna switch to talking about a different segment of time. And I'm, I'm gonna move kind of quickly through this because I wanna get to chapter 22. Um, but right here at the beginning, he's still having a conversation. It says, some of the disciples began talking about the majestic stonework of the temple. So they're still in the temple, right? And the memorial decorations on the wall. But Jesus said, the time is coming when all of these things will be completely demolished. No stone will be left on top of another. And if you recognize, this sounds very similar to something he said in chapter 19, verses 43 and 44. It says, before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close you in from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave one single stone in place because you did not accept your opportunity for salvation. Ooh, this is that moment that Ellen was talking about last week when Jesus is coming into the city and he begins to weep. Not just a simple, oh, I love you, and so I'm weeping because of that, but because he's looking at a city that salvation came to and they rejected it. And this was going to be the result of their rejection of Jesus, salvation, right? And what he's referring to here is actually going to happen 30 years after this point in the year 70 AD. This is the moment when the Roman leader Titus is going to come in and take over the city Jerusalem and they are going to set fire to the temple. And when they set fire to the temple, it burns to the ground and the fire is so hot that it melts all of the gold in the temple. So there is nothing left, not one stone on on top of the other. This is what Jesus is referencing. But right after this, he shifts to a different time period. He says, the disciples said, teacher, when will all of this happen? What sign will you show us that these things are about to take place? And he jumps forward and he begins to talk about our day and time. 
This next passage right here where he says, don't let anyone mislead you for many will come in my name. They'll say, I am the Messiah. The time has come. Don't believe them. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not panic. Yes, these things must take place first, but the end won't follow immediately, he said. Then nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and plagues. Hello. 2020 in many lands and there will be terrifying things and great and miraculous signs of heaven. Pause. Then he's going to say, but before all of this occurs, he's jumping backward in time. And this jumps back to the time, the day and time the disciples are living in. He says, before all of this occurs, a great time of persecution will come. You will be dragged into synagogues and prisons and you'll stand before kings and governors because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. So don't worry in advance what it is that you're gonna have to say. Is that my phone? It, oh, (laughs) nope. Not me. Okay, anyway, sorry y'all. We were hearing the dinging of my messages. I still hear it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> anyway, sorry. So he, is, he has jumped back in time and he is telling the disciples, before all of that happened, what I've just described, you're gonna die. He's really clear about this. And he's like, some of your own families are gonna give you over to die, but you will stand before the synagogue and be judged. You will have these conversations, but don't worry about what it is that you're gonna say because my spirit's gonna fall on you when you are in these moments. You guys remember Stephen? When Stephen was stoned to death, all that he said right before then and then in the midst of that, he looks up and he sees Jesus standing, oh, it makes me emotional, standing at the right hand of the Father. You know, all the other times we hear about Jesus in, in heaven, he's seated at his throne. But when Jesus, when, sorry, when Stephen is being stoned, he stands to his feet. Oh, that picture wrecks me. Jesus is just too good. He's so much better than we can say. Um, And so he's describing to his disciples, don't let this throw you off because my power is gonna fall on you and you are going to give an account and answers in this moment that no one can refute. They won't even be able to answer you, right? And then he says, and then you will see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Then you will know the time of the destruction has arrived. That is the reference to 70 AD and the ruler Titus who comes to overthrow Jerusalem. And then at the end of it, it says, and Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the period of the Gentiles comes to an end. And then he swaps to another time frame. This is the coming, the return of Jesus. He's about to talk about. Verse 25, it says, and there will be strange signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. You guys know what blood moons are? You know, back in this day and time, they knew to look to the sky for answers when things were gonna change. They knew that they would see miraculous signs in the sky. And that's not something that's typical for us these days, but we are still seeing things happen in the sky. We just have to kind of correctly interpret what it is that we are seeing, right? So we're seeing things happen in the sky. We're seeing blood moons. We're seeing all of these signs and wonders in the sky. And this is what Jesus begins to refer to. And here on earth, the nations will be in turmoil perplexed by the roaring seas and the strange tides. People will be terrified of what they see coming upon the earth for the powers in heaven will be shaken. Then everyone will see the son of man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. I think I feel emotional today, everyone. So when all of these things begin to happen, stand and look up for your salvation is near. This is so powerful. We don't know the hour or the day that he will return. 
but we know that he is returning. And what we do know is that his description of the earth and what is happening in the earth looks really familiar. Look familiar to anybody else? There's turmoil everywhere. The powers of heaven are being shaken. There's plagues everywhere, literally. I don't know if I thought in my lifetime I would see biblical plagues really happening, but we see the plagues of locusts that have been happening over the past few years in Kenya. Then we see the plagues that are happening here with sickness that have been happening all over the world. We are living in biblical days. And Jesus is asking his bride, you may not know the hour or the time, but will you stand and look up and get your eyes off of what is happening in the world because my return is near. And if you will lock eyes with me, then you will understand that when I tell you to lock eyes with the world, it's not for you to be fearful, but it's because my return is near and there are so many who do not yet know me, right? And so Jesus continues on and, and I wanna encourage you, keep, keep reading after this point. And, you, and if you have questions about biblical prophecy, I actually do have some resources that I would love to point you to, people who are far more learned in this area than I am, but they will connect you back to Daniel chapter nine when he begins to talk about the end of the age, things like that. Uh, there is very specific biblical prophecy and timeframes from Daniel chapter nine that have actually occurred exactly the way that he said that it would happen. There is no other book, no other book on the face of the earth that is correctly predicting history, but the word of God. Amen. Aren't you thankful for the word of God? Ooh, I love it. Ooh, I could dance around the room. Okay, chapter 22. We're gonna move on to chapter 22. This chapter is the one that is titled The Suffering of the Savior. So the time that we are in right here at chapter 22, it's the time of Passover. And you guys remember what Passover represents. Passover is the festival where they remember their slavery in Egypt and how God came in with that final plague. It was the plague of the firstborn, taking of the firstborn. But he said, if you will take the blood of an innocent spotless lamb and put it on the doorposts of your house, that death angel is gonna pass born of everything. The firstborn of every human, the firstborn of cattle. I am going to require the life of the firstborn. And so we are in the season of Passover right here. And in verse three, it says, then Satan entered Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And he went to the leading priests and captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted and they promised to give him money. So he agreed and began looking for opportunities to betray Jesus so that they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. Can you imagine? One of your closest of close. But it's very interesting because what's actually happening here, that time of Passover reminded them when God required the life of the firstborn son. And what is happening is that the leaders of the church along with one of Jesus' disciples are plotting to take the life of the firstborn son of God while Jesus was preparing to be the Passover lamb. Ooh, it's so good. Verse seven, now the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed and Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and he said, go prepare the Passover meal so that we can eat it together. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked. And in Jesus' fashion, I love this y'all. In Jesus' fashion, he's like, okay, you're gonna go into a city and there's gonna be a man carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You're gonna go into a city, you're gonna see a colt tied up right there by the fence. That's the one, right? It's just, 
only Jesus, right? You're gonna go into the city, see a man carrying a pitcher of water, follow him and go to the house that he goes into. But we know that he must be a servant if he's carrying a pitcher of water and he's not the owner of the house, but he's going into the house, right? Okay, so they go into the owner of the house. They say, uh, tell them that the teacher asks, where is the guest room that I can eat? I love that he says, where's the guest room? He doesn't even say, where is the room of honor? Where is your main dining room, as we would call it, right? He says, is there a guest room where the teacher can eat the Passover meal with his disciples? He will take you upstairs into a large room that is already set up. Isn't this amazing? Somehow, by the Holy Spirit, these people knew to set up that room because Jesus was coming. And the man carrying the pitcher of water did his role. He, carried, he walked them all the way to the house, right? And I got to thinking about this and I love this so much because the last time we see the pitchers of water is when? The wedding at Cana, Jesus' first miracle is the last time we see pitchers of water playing a significant role. And here at the preparation for Jesus' finest, final miraculous moment, the pitchers of water come in again, only it's not gonna be turned to wine, it's making room for wine himself. The water is coming and leading to them to the room where Jesus himself would be the cup lifted up. Ooh, so good. It says, when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table and Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. And you know, Jesus has told them several times, the son of man's gonna be lifted up. What does that mean? I'm gonna have to die. What are you saying? Like they, they've gone through this like several times and they're like, huh? They're still not getting it. And so he begins the explanation. I've been waiting to eat this with you before my suffering begins. And I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And boy, was it gonna be fulfilled right in front of them, right? So he took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and he gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this when you remember me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Now these guys, they have been celebrating Passover their entire lives. This is a very normal thing for them. They've seen the bread, they've seen the lamb. They have done this every year of their lives. And all of the sudden in this moment, you know, I imagine maybe they were thinking back to when they were younger and they would sit around the table and their father and their mother, as they passed the bread around and they're eating the unleavened bread, they would recount the story of when the death angel passed over the homes because the sacrificial blood of the lamb was on the doorpost. They're telling that whole story, but all of a sudden, Jesus is the one who is carrying out Passover and he holds that same bread up that they've been eating their entire lives. And he said, this is my body, it is broken for you. And all of the sudden they gain the understanding of what it is they've really been eating their entire life. And then he holds up a cup, but he tells them, oh, let me say this first. He tells them every time you do this, remember me. Up until this point, you know, we've talked about that everything in history prior to the cross is pointing to the cross, right? And so up until this point, every year when they've taken Passover, what they have remembered is Egypt. 
They've remembered Egypt. They've remembered the moment that they were in their homes when the death angel passed over the sacrificial blood of the lamb. But Jesus is in front of them saying, this is me. It was always a picture of me. And from here on out, every time you do this, don't remember Egypt anymore. Remember me. And then he holds up another cup and he says, this is the new covenant between God and his people. There's something that these disciples would have been very aware of that's a little bit different in our culture. They understood that covenant meant blood. Blood is the seal of a covenant. If there's no blood, there's no covenant, right? So from the very beginning, we see Adam and Eve. God shed, or he uh, kills uh, the animal, sheds the blood of the animal, makes a covering for Adam and Eve, right? signaling that a greater covering was coming. With Abraham, he enters into a covenant with Abraham. The animals are laid open and the tenants of covenant, it says that you and the person you're in covenant with are gonna basically walk through these split open animals together saying we are in covenant with each other. And if either one of us break the tenants of this covenant, this can be done to us. But Abraham doesn't walk through it. God himself passes through while Abraham sits on the side because God was saying, I'm issuing a covenant that's not contingent on you, it's contingent on me. You won't have the power to break this covenant because I'm the one who is committing to this, right? So he shed the blood there. Then Moses, Moses, they bring the sacrifice at Mount Sinai at the base where they build the altars. They kill the animals, drain half the blood out, and then Moses starts just spraying them with blood. And it's the symbol of the covenant. Then you have the external expression of the covenant in every male in Israel, which is Circumcision, that's right. It's the shedding of blood and the removing of that foreskin. So they understand when Jesus says to them, this is the new covenant. I wonder if they were thinking, where's the blood? Where's the blood? Because it can't be covenant unless there's a seal of blood. And then Jesus says to them, between God and this people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out for you as a sacrifice. And this is subjective on my part, but I believe this is the point where they finally clue in Jesus is gonna die. Because it has to be blood, not just a representation of blood. There has to be blood for a covenant seal to occur. And so at this point, I think they realize, oh, he wasn't kidding he's really going to die, right? And then he looks at them and he says, but there's someone sitting at this table who is here as a friend. He is the man who is going to betray me for it has been determined that the son of man must die. They're getting it at this point. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him and the disciples begin to ask each other. And I don't know about you, but if I'm sitting at that table and he says that, my stomach starts hurting, I start getting a sweat stash. And I'm like, is it me? Is it me? Am I gonna do something? Surely not, I'm not gonna betray you, is it you? And so they start having this conversation. But right after this, the very next verse, oh, the disciples, they began to argue amongst themselves about who would be the greatest among them. Oh my goodness. Okay, they finally clued in that Jesus is gonna die. They know he's gonna die at this point. So their hearts have to be moved with grief. But then he tells them someone's gonna betray him and all of a sudden it snaps them back into this. Okay, it's not gonna be me. It's gonna be you because I'm greater than you. I'm greater than you. And all of a sudden Jesus has to address them about what he's already been addressing with the Pharisees. 
Because remember, he's addressed this time and time again. Don't take the position of honor. Don't worry about this. Don't try and and do all of this. And Jesus, and I like to think, you know, you can't really understand someone's tone in a text, right? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna infer tone just a little bit here, okay? He's had all of these conversations, right? And then he's told them, beware of the religious teachers who do this very thing. And then here they are in his final hours with him and Jesus began to communicate. He might've been a little bit intense, but you know, he wasn't like flipping tables, but like a little bit intense. And so he says to them, in this world, the kings and great men lord over their people, yet they are called friends of the people. But among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank and the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important? The one who sits at the table or the one who serves? Well, the one who sits at the table, of course, but not here, not here. For I am among you as one who serves. He's literally saying, you guys are arguing about who's the greatest and the greatest is sitting at the table with you, showing you that I'm not fighting for a position of honor. I don't care about a name. I don't care about the seat of honor. I'm here to serve. And forever from this point on, your perspective is to be, I don't care about the seat of honor. I don't care about my name because I haven't come to build my kingdom anyways. I've come to build the kingdom of the one who is is the greatest, who is sitting at the table and only he is worthy. Only Jesus is worthy. And then I like to think compassion entered back in and he kind of softened his tone just a little bit, right? Because <laughs> at this point, you know, they're kind of schooled. He schooled them at this point. And so they're back at that. I'm not saying a word to that place. And he says, but you have stayed with me in my time of trial. Can't you hear the compassion come, coming in here? And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So I think he's, we can infer possibly that he was a little bit intense and then he changes course and he's like, but I need you to know just how good I am. I know I just got intense with you. I need you to remember that, don't forget it. But my goodness is about to tell you that you will sit on a throne. And if you read Revelation chapter four, it's the account of the throne room. And part of the account of the throne room, right after it's so beautiful, right after it says that around Jesus's throne, it was encircled with the glow of an emerald. And then it says, and then there were 24 thrones. 12 of them apparently belong to the disciples. I don't know who the other 12 are. I think Billy Graham's gotta have one of them. I don't know. I don't know who you think might have one of those. Reinhardt Bonnke's probably in there too. But, But there's 12 of them belong to the disciples, right? And I just think it's his kindness to bring this up right before the end. And then Jesus turns to Peter and he has a discussion. Now, uh, if, if I'm being honest with you, I really wish that I could tap Rebecca in on this one because Rebecca has a whole teaching on this moment between Peter and Jesus that is so phenomenal. But this moment, something that you'll notice, Jesus looks at Peter, whom he has already named Peter, and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Why do you think Jesus, after renaming Simon Peter, might he have called him Simon again? Any thoughts on that? I know that's kind of a deeper one to, okay. Emphasizing importance. Yep. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, a reminder of who he was without Jesus. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's so good. All of those, such great thoughts. Um, And I agree with them. I really do agree with them. I think that he's looking at Peter and certainly when Satan is going to come, he's not going to honor the name that Jesus gave him. Because isn't that right? He doesn't ever wanna call us what our covenant relationship would be. He wants to always call us what we used to be when we were lost in sin, when we were separated from Jesus. And so I think he says, Simon, Simon, I do think it is a reminder of where he came from, that sin nature, right? Like Satan is asking to sift many of you like wheat. He doesn't just say Simon here, he says each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon. My prayer for you, Simon, is that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented, let let me pause there. When he says, so that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented, basically what he is saying here is that what you're gonna walk through this denial, I won't even count it as failure. I've prayed that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented, when we see the proof that you have not failed, that this denial that you walk through is not the failure of your faith, right? Turn to me again and you're gonna strengthen your brothers. What I love about this, Rebecca talks um, about covenant relationship when it comes to here. Part of what covenant relationship actually does is it covers weakness. It doesn't expose it publicly. And so what you see here might make you scratch your head a little bit, but is he exposing Peter publicly and what he's gonna do? What he's actually doing is he's, he is letting Peter know, I already know that this is coming, but you're gonna make a comeback, Peter. He's already building the confidence and faith in Peter that this isn't gonna be the end for him. But not only is he building it in him, he's building it into the disciples because Peter is gonna step up and and be such a leader with these disciples, but the disciples are gonna need the confidence that Jesus said he's gonna make a comeback. And when he makes a comeback, he is to strengthen us. We are to trust his leadership. He will be restored to a place of leadership. He's not gonna be an outcast, he's gonna be a leader. That's what covenant does. Covenant isn't just gonna expose, if he was gonna break covenant with Peter, he would have just said, you're gonna blow it. And that was gonna be the end of it. But he doesn't say that. He says, you're gonna deny me three times before the rooster even crows. But when you've turned again, and you will, you're gonna strengthen your brothers. And everyone in this room just heard me say it. You're gonna make a comeback, Peter. Don't worry, right? So let's, let's move forward just a little bit. Jesus on the Mount of Olives, they, they come out of this moment at the table and he goes to the Mount of Olives where it was a very customary place for him to pray. And Jesus wants to pray and he goes, what the Bible says is like a stone's throw away from the disciples, but he tells the disciples, pray right now that you do not give in to temptation. He walks away, he begins interceding, praying, an angel shows up to strengthen him in this moment. So powerful. And then he walks back to the disciples and he finds them asleep, right? And we think, we could sit here and think, you know, if that had been me, I wouldn't have been, excuse me, I wouldn't have been sleeping. Oh yes, yes, you might have been sleeping. There are four, first of all, (laughs) there are four cups of wine that are involved in um, the last supper in the Passover meal. So I'm just gonna throw that one out there. It could could make you a little bit sleepy, okay? Um, But I don't know what your translation says, but it says, 
At, at last, he stood up again and returned to the disciples only to find them asleep, exhausted from grief. This is how we know they had clued in. Jesus was on to pray and they are grieved. They are weeping because they're gonna have to say goodbye to him, right? Doesn't that make you feel a whole lot more compassion for these guys? To know they weren't just sleeping either because their belly was full of wine or because they were just tired and they couldn't hang with Jesus. It's because they were grieving him already before he died because they understood it. And then it says, but even as Jesus said this, a crowd approached led by Judas, one of the 12 disciples. And Judas walked over to Jesus and greeted him with a kiss. But Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? This word kiss, uh, I looked it up, blueletterbible.org. It is one of our best friends. Uh, Holy Spirit is our first best friend. Anyways, um, I looked it up and this word kiss, um, it actually comes from the word phileo, which means brotherly love. Um, And this word, it is an official way that they would both greet and dismiss those that they were in fellowship with, right? And the Bible says that Judas came and he greeted Jesus with a kiss. But I believe what he was actually doing was dismissing Jesus in this moment. This was a kiss of dismissal. This wasn't a kiss of just greeting. And this is how he told the chief priests and the leaders, I'm gonna identify him with a kiss. But this was a divorcing right here in this moment. He was divorcing himself of Jesus. This was a kiss of dismissal. And then he walked away. And um, we know what, what came as an end to Judas's life. But in this moment, the other disciples, they saw what was happening. And prior to this, Jesus had said, previously, I've told you, don't take a bag anywhere you're going, but now I'm gonna tell you to gather your things. Take a bag with you. And if you don't have a sword, go ahead and sell some things and buy a sword, right? And they're like, hey, we have two swords among us. He's like, oh, that's good. So they go, they're in the garden, right? With their two swords. And when all of this happens, it says, when the other disciples saw what was about to happen, they exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? This would be me, 100%. I'm like, I'm, I'm ready. I am ready, Jesus. I got my sword, like you said, okay? And uh, we brought our sword. I love it. It says, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords, <laughs> right? And then one of them who we know from the other gospels, it's Peter, my man, Peter. Uh, he struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his right ear. Uh, this is an interesting thing to note. I think years ago in Bible study, we hypothesized that maybe he missed because of the cups of wine that they'd had, but he slashed off the right ear. And y'all, I just have to say, I don't know about you, but I am loyal to my family. If you are family to me, I love Jesus, but I will cut you. So if you come at my family, you come with words against my family, you come to try and threaten my family, honey, that sword is coming out. I will cut you. So I identify with Peter in this moment. He's like, back up everybody, I got this. And he tries to slash off the ear. And then Jesus steps forward and he says, no more of this. And, And Peter and myself in this moment, I'd be like, my bad. My bad, scooting back, right? And then Jesus touches the man's ear and heals him immediately. Can you imagine if you were that man? He's probably still got blood all over him, but he has a perfectly fixed ear. He walks away from that whole scenario with the proof that he is the son of God. 
Can you imagine what that might've done? The story that he told when he went home, you are not gonna believe this. This slightly inebriated man came at me with a sword and he slashed my ear off. And then the man that we went to arrest because he's accused of doing all of these things and he's not supposed to be who he is, picks up my ear and he put it back on. Do you see the blood? Do you see the blood? It is the proof that this thing came off at one point and it's not like Velcro. No, it's really on there. It's on there. Can you imagine him telling this story? And what if this meant the salvation of his household? Can you imagine? I imagine that it might have. And so Jesus then speaks to the leading priests and the captains of the temple guard and the elders. Boy, this is quite a crowd that's come after him. And he says to them, am I some dangerous revolutionary that you have come at me with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there every day, but this is your moment. The time when power and darkness reigns. Ooh. And right from this moment, they take Jesus and they bring him to Caiaphas's house. Caiaphas is the high priest, right? They bring him into Caiaphas's house. And what happens, you know, they've got this outer courtyard where a lot of people are out there, probably some of the elders, probably whomever. And they're all gathering around the fire. And Peter, he's followed kind of at a distance. He walks up to the fire and a little girl looks at Peter and is like, she's like staring at him, studying. You know, when somebody's like a stare bear and they're like looking at you. And you're like, you're like you, you can't help, but you like your eye catches them a few times. Like you're like magnetized, right? And so the girl finally says, I think you're one of Jesus's followers. And Jesus is like, or, sorry, Peter's like, I don't even know the man, right? And then another man is gonna look at Peter and he's like, uh, they recognize him because of his accent. He's Galilean. So they know he's not from that immediate area. And they're like, no, 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 you're, you're one of Jesus' followers. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. The final time a man looks at Peter and he's like, you're one of them. He curses. And my Bible doesn't say what the curse word is, but we know that he curses. At this point, it's strong enough language to say, I swear, I do not know him. And right at this moment, Jesus, who's not out in the courtyard, y'all, get this picture in your mind. Jesus is in this palatial home. This is a big place for Caiaphas because he's been stealing all the money. He's built a, built a huge home, right? And Jesus, through one of the windows of the home, here's the rooster crow, looks right out to Peter in the courtyard. And Peter catches his eye right as the rooster crows. And all of a sudden he remembers what Jesus has said. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you even know me. And it says, Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. Peter, Peter, who had been the first one to whip the sword out and slash someone's ear right in this moment. I don't know how long it had been. It hadn't even been eight hours. You know, we can assume at this point that we're not even at the turn of a day. Just a little while after this, after Peter was willing to cut someone's ear off. You talk about my family, I will cut you. But in this moment, when it could have cost him his life, he's like, I don't know him. I've walked with him for three years, but I don't know him. I've watched him heal. I've watched him resurrect. I've watched him do all these things, but I don't know him because it cost me something all of a sudden in this moment. And Peter leaves and he weeps bitterly. But remember that Jesus had already said, you're gonna make a comeback, Peter. Weep bitterly, fine. But just know when you repent, you're gonna turn and you're gonna strengthen the brothers. You're gonna make a comeback, Peter. And actually, I actually wanna end right here. And um, next week, as we get into the end of this, into chapter 23 and 24, we're gonna see the trial, the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection, the impartation of the Holy Spirit, the commissioning of the disciples. We're gonna see that next week as we close out the book of Luke. But I wanna go back to one thing as we close this out. When Jesus was speaking to them, 
and he was telling them, let me get back to it. He was telling them what the time was going to look like. Or it's, it's sorry, it's in the garden. When, he said, when it says that they were so exhausted from grief that they could not stay awake and pray. And Jesus had, had told them right before this point, pray that you will not give in to temptation. I just sense the Holy Spirit asking us today, you're looking around your nation and what you see is grieving. What you see, it grieves your heart. There, there is deception, there is hatred, there are wars and rumors of wars, there's plagues, all of these things that he has talked about here. And I believe that the Lord would encourage us at this point, prayer has got to be your response. We cannot be reactionary. We've gotta be proactive. We need to be praying. If we look around and what we see brings us to a place of grief, then let us hear what Jesus says, get up and pray. There's one thing that will change what is going on in our nation right now. And it's not us just talking about God. It's prayer. We can talk about later. He's gonna give the authority to use his name to take control of the atmosphere of our, of our homes first, then our cities, then our state and our nation. We have the authority because of the name of Jesus, because of the blood of Jesus to take authority over the atmosphere and to command and to bind up the spirit of deception and to send it under the feet of Jesus and to loose from the heavenly place, the spirit of truth, to bind up the spirit of violence, to send it under the feet of Jesus and to loose peace from the heavenly places, to bind up sickness and infirmity, to bind up hatred and racism, to bind up all of these things and command them to go under the feet of Jesus and to loose from the heavenly places by his name, by his power, the kingdom of heaven. He is asking us to occupy the space. Call for the kingdom of heaven to come and you do it through prayer. That has to be our first response. So as we close out today, I just wanna pray. I wanna pray for our nation because I just sense even the heart of the father grieving for what is going on in our country right now. Um, but also, I just wanna pray for your homes individually because I know that we see things that are difficult in the streets of our cities and our states, but there may be really difficult things going on in your homes. So I just wanna pray as we close this out. Heavenly Father, I just thank you. Oh, I thank you for your word, Jesus. You are more merciful than we can even imagine or articulate were we given all of eternity to do it but you encouraged your disciples in the hour of your very accusation, trial and death. You encouraged your disciples, wake up and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. Wake up and pray so that your eyes don't stay fixed on what you are seeing right now, but so that you lift your eyes to the Father, taking the authority that I have given you to shift the atmosphere of your homes, of your cities and of your state. Father, I ask that you would help us in this time as we remember the way that you laid your life down, thinking nothing of equality with God as something to be grasped, but you humbled yourself and took, your, took on the form of a servant. Jesus, I pray that in our homes, we would be servants. I pray that in our church, we would be servants in your church. I pray that in our cities, we would be humble servants, that in our state, we would be humble servants, that in this nation, we would be humble servants. But your word also says that the righteous are bold as lions, 
that we would boldly take your truth, that we would boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence in the hour that we have need where we will receive from you. So Father, I ask a blessing over every home that is represented under the sound of my voice. I ask, Father, that if there is tension in the home, that you would bind up the spirit of tension, remove it from the home and bring your spirit of peace in that home in Jesus' name. In our cities and in our state, Father, would you bind up the spirit of tension, that spirit of deception in Jesus' name. Bind it in the name of Jesus, commanding it to go under the feet of Jesus, to be stripped of authority, dominion, and power. And we loose over our homes, over our cities, and over our state in this nation, the spirit of peace, because peace has a name. We loose your spirit, Jesus, over our country in Jesus' name. Father, I pray that your church would look like you. And God, that our we wouldn't be reactive, but we would be proactive with prayer, Lord Jesus, how we need you. We need the son of man who was lifted up. And when he is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. So we pray, Lord God, that you would give us eyes to see, to lift our eyes off of the pain, to lift our eyes to heaven and to ask for the kingdom of heaven to come and be established in our midst. Jesus, we love you and our eyes are on you. We bless you for your sacrifice, Jesus. In your power, in your name, and for your glory, we pray and believe all of these things. Amen. Thank you.